Good morning, church. I'm excited to be preaching this morning. There's a couple of good mornings. Thank you. Um, if you want to go ahead and open your copy of the scriptures to John chapter 7, that's where we're going to be today, John chapter 7. I wanted to go ahead and say just a few words about myself as way of introduction, as I understand that um, I haven't met all of you guys, and maybe we haven't met before. Um, my name is Jeremy. Um, as Jerry mentioned, I help out with the college students, so that's, a, that's my side hustle. Um, but during the week, I'm actually a chaplain at a local pediatrician and um, internal medicine group. Um, so I just get to, to love on team members, do some counseling and care throughout the week, and then they're gracious enough to let me join in for staff meeting and um, just be a part of the pastoral team. And I can tell you it has been um, a joy um, to get to know those guys and fellowship and pray with them. Um, most important thing about me besides my salvation in Christ is my beautiful wife. Um, so her name's Grace, and then we have a little one-year-old um, named Renner. So if you haven't met him, he will meet you someday. He is a uh, very excitable child, um, got all the cheeks, and he is just ready to give a hug to anybody who will let him. So I hope you get to, um, get to meet my family if you haven't already. Um, I wanted to also kind of introduce you, um, if I may, to today's sermon. I understand, having been in the seats, that it's, it's a little bit difficult to hear from someone different every week. Um, so used to maybe one speaker, and so you're kind of at your favorite restaurant, right? But you just don't know what kind of dish they're going to bring out. You know what I mean? Like, you're like, I'm glad I'm here. It's going to be great. Um, but everyone's got a different style. Um, I just walked away from the pulpit. For, for some of you, that's like, okay, he's already throwing it up. It's not my favorite dish. Um, right, but I just want to kind of lay everything out of what I'm going to say today. I wouldn't normally do that. I try to keep you in a little bit of suspense, keep you awake to the end, and then, you know, get you. Um, but today I just wanted to, I wanted to introduce you to, to what I'm going to be saying so that you can be familiar with it. Um, you don't have to, to guess what the main point is. You don't have to guess where we're going to land. Um, so there's, in this, this chapter, um, there's a lot of verses, right? But there's a couple snippets of conversation. And um, in any conversation, you guys know how it is. Maybe if you're coming home and you're relaying something to your spouse or to the family, um, you have to start at the beginning. So we're going to do that. Um, we're going to, I'm going to, there's three different snippets. There's one, Jesus talking to his brothers. There's a snippet where Jesus is talking to just the general crowd. And then there's Jesus talking to um, the soldiers and how they, they came to arrest him. All right, so there's just snippets of conversation. And then the summit of this passage is, is found in verse 37. Um, so if you want to actually, I'll go ahead and read that verse. Um, he, he stands up on the last day of the feast and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. All right, so I have, I have a simple goal today, and that is to highlight and exalt Jesus as God's Messiah and his um, complete submission and obedience to the Father. And then I also want to highlight Jesus' wonderful and exciting gift and promise to all those who believe in him as God's Messiah, which is the Holy Spirit. And, and John describes it and Jesus describes this Holy Spirit as a river of living water flowing from out of our hearts. Um, so as you can tell, I'm excited about this passage. Um, I hope you are excited about this passage. Um, so let's go ahead and dive in. To help out the, the length of this chapter, I'm actually going to read, like I said, those snippets in the different sections. So let me read verses 1 to 13. I'll say a couple comments. We'll go to the second snippet and, and, and so on. 
So 1 to 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see your works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his own brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that it works, its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was muttering about um, him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So we have our first conversation, and it's Jesus' brothers saying, hey, if you want to make it big time, you got to go to Jerusalem, right? Like we would tell any musician, right, you got to go to Nashville. They're saying, hey, if you're going to have any luck at gathering a following, becoming this superstar, if you're going to overthrow the Roman government and just be the, the people's man, you got to go to Jerusalem during this feast, right? And you've got you've to hit it really strong. And, and it's a seemingly simple part of the conversation, right? But Jesus doesn't give in to that peer pressure. Right? Jesus says something very simple. He says, I'm not going to go up to the feast right now. Okay, thanks, John. It's interesting. Why did, why did he even include that? Right? Um, he's trying to um, point out that, that Jesus is actually on his own timetable. Right? Jesus is actually uh, being completely obedient to the Father's will and the Father's timing. That he's not going to give in to his brothers um, who say, go, go, go. You should go there now. Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand. Right? I and the Father are one. I'm following every bit of his footsteps. Because just a verse later, he does, in fact, end up going to Jerusalem. And he does go, in fact, to celebrate um, this festival of the Jews. The other thing I wanted to point out um, from these verses is, um, is the curve, right, that Jesus has on the human race. Does the name Torin Nelson mean anything to you? Probably not. He was the smartest kid in my high school. Right. And he may have made a big time. I like to think that not all smart people go far in life, but usually they do. Right? But Torin Nelson was the curve breaker in our class. You know what I'm talking about? When you take a test, right, and the whole class flunks, and the whole class gets a D minus, and then the teacher's like, Torin Nelson got an A. So I'm not going to put a curve on this grade. Right? No one likes Torin Nelson anymore. Right. He might have got into Ivy League, but no one likes him. Right? That's what Jesus is saying whenever he stepped down into darkness. He says, well, one, the, the darkness does not overcome the light. That's what we're celebrating this morning. But he also says, and I stepped into the darkness, and they treated me like Torin Nelson. Right? Because I, I came into the darkness, and what do people like you and me hate about the light? Right? It reveals our sin. It shows us that we're not God's holiness incarnate, that we are not living up to the right standard, that we are not full of the glory of God. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, I'm going to go up to the feast when I want to. 
And he says, and you guys, he says, um, you can go up whenever it's your time and no one's going to hate you. But he says, they're going to hate me because I am the light of the world. And he repeats that from chapter 1. Um, I wanted to tell you also a little bit about this feast. Um, so what is this feast of, of booths? Um, I'm going to try to say booths, but every time I do, I just want to say out loud, I say booze on accident. Um, so we've already had one sermon on alcohol this year. <laughs> this is not your second, don't worry. So I'm saying feast of, of booths. Um, I just can't say it very well. All right, so the feast of booths um, was a celebration of the Jewish people. Um, they would get together, and what they were celebrating was how God had brought them out of Egypt and how he had carried them through the wilderness and brought them into the promised land. Right? God's redemption story through the people of Israel's life. And so um, God instituted the festival, and he wanted to remind the people that they are pilgrims. He wanted to remind the people that they're strangers and that they are on a journey. And so he told them to go out of their own homes, set up these booths, right? set up these tents, um, put up some, some palm branches and, and a lean-to and live outside for a week because you want to celebrate where you've come from and where you're going, right? So it's like any of our holidays. We remember what God has done. We remember his faithfulness, and that's why they were, they were celebrating. Um, there was a couple symbols that were significant for these people. So when they celebrated, they, they were actually, it was in the fall, so they were celebrating the harvest that was coming in, the grapes and the olives. So they would actually walk through the city holding up um, lemons and, and fruit um, to celebrate the harvest. And then another thing they would do is they would actually pray for rain um, over the coming year. And they would pray for water, and they would look to God for that. Um, and there were several reasons that they would pray for water. As anyone in an agrarian society would know, you need water, right, to live and to have a harvest. Um, the other thing that they were doing is celebrating whenever God provided them water in the wilderness. Um, and uh, maybe you guys would be familiar with the history there. I can't go into all of it. But as God led his people through the wilderness, it was hot and arid and, and stifling heat. But God kept popping up wells of water along the way through this rock, which was Christ. And so they were just celebrating that. So there's, there's a lot of context whenever he steps into town. He's not just celebrating um, a, a random holiday. right? He's participating in the Jewish festival. And Jesus says, I'm going to go up on my own timing, on God's timing. Let's keep reading the second snippet of the conversation in verse 14 through 24. So about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath the man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So he goes into the feast, he goes into the temple, and he begins to teach. 
And, and what I want to draw out, what I think John is drawing out from this passage is that he's actually not only dependent on God's timetable, right? He's dependent on God's authority. Um, and there were several times throughout Jesus' teaching that they said, this man doesn't speak like the scribes. This man does not speak like the re- other religious leaders. And they were absolutely right. Jesus was drawing on an authority, a truth, a foundation that none of those other scribes and rabbis and religious teachers could. But somehow, still at the same time, even though he spoke with an authority that was amazing to the people, Jesus says about himself, he says, it's not mine. He says, I am committed and submitted to my Father. And he, and he goes on to, to say a few words about that. He says, if someone teaches on their own authority, they're seeking their own glory, right? If I got up here and just told you all about my life and all about what I've been learning and all about, you know, my clever skills and how to use them in, in your walk, right? I'm teaching on my authority for my glory. But as Jesus says, if someone's teaching on someone else's authority, they're seeking the glory of another. All that to say that Jesus is committed to glorifying his Father in every circumstance. And his faithfulness pioneers the way for our salvation. Um, another thing that he says that's very ironic, um, this would have resonated with the Jews, right? Whenever a rabbi got up in the temple, all the rabbis love to do is to quote rabbi so-and-so and rabbi so-and-so and rabbi so-and-so. Right? So they would keep on going back and they're like, oh, and this is what this person said, and this is what this person said, and this is what this person said. Such to the point, as you guys well know, probably about the Pharisees, what's typical of them is that all they did was start basing things off of the rabbi before them and the rabbi before them, before them. At some point, they totally just lost the law. Right? At some point, they just totally lost the will of God for their lives. And so they were teaching traditions of rabbi so-and-so or pastor so-and-so, but they had gotten away from the very word of God. So Jesus comes and he says, yeah, I do the same thing as the rabbis. I quote another authority but I'm not quoting Rabbi so-and-so, right? I'm quoting Moses. I'm quoting God. I'm quoting the law. So Jesus has something that these, these men could never have. He has complete authority, and he's seeking um, the glory of his Father. And then in verses 20 through 24, I'm wrapping up this second snippet of the conversation, what is Jesus talking about? I don't know if you're, you're like me. Anytime the Bible just throws out circumcision willy-nilly, you're just kind of like, okay, I'm a little bit lost. If I could, I'll summarize. Jesus says, he's highlighting that the Jews had given up um, really the intent of God, the heart of God in their keeping of the law. So he says, so Jews were told to circumcise their babies on the eighth day, but you're also told to keep the Sabbath, right? So the Jews were like, we need to, we need to circumcise our, our babies, our baby boys, but we also need to keep the Sabbath, okay? And then they put a precedent one over the other. Right? So they, they said, well, if we're going to do that, we've got we to gotta break the Sabbath in order to, to keep it whole, right? Or in order to, to purify this baby, right? So it's a good in, in, in desire, it's a good intention. So Jesus says, you do that. He says, I came into town, and he quotes this one miracle. Maybe you're like, well, there's so many miracles. The last time that Jesus was in Jerusalem is whenever Pastor Robert was preaching on the man at the well. The man who was lame and our, I said the well, I meant the pool. The man who was waiting on the water to stir up, and he's been sitting there, he's been, he's been lame for years, and he heals this man. It's amazing. He heals the man, and then Jesus says, so go, go ahead, pick up your bed and go home. And, this, and the, the Pharisees are like, you carried your mat on Sunday? Really? Like, you're going to carry your knapsack on Sunday? Don't you know how heinous that is? And he's like, 
Y'all, I'm walking. <laughs> I don't care about your knapsack. Right, I'm walking. Right, and Jesus is saying, if I can give life on the Sabbath, right, I know what the Sabbath is all about more than you do. Right, you've made these traditions. You've made these guardrails. You've made so many hoops that people have to jump through. He says, but if you can circumcise a baby on the Sabbath to, to keep them pure, he said, then I can heal a man to keep him whole. I can heal a person. I have that divine prerogative, if you will. Again, Jesus is saying, I have an authority that you don't, that's been given from above. And then he concludes in verse 24. He says, do not judge by, man's, or by appearances, but judge with right judgment. It's interesting. Helpful for us today to see where Jesus was at. He puts appearances in one category and right judgment in the other. Right? So he doesn't give us in this passage much to understand what is, a, what is a wrong judgment than he just says appearances. And I don't know about you, but I judge on appearances every single day. What people look like, what people sound like. For these people, it was, he's walking through the market with his, with his bed on his shoulder. He must be in sin. They don't even know that Jesus just healed a man and he's, he's the best day of his life. And he says, you judge on the outside. You judge by appearances. But right judgment um, is something deeper, something fuller. And again, what I think Jesus is saying, he's saying that he is following his father's will, full of authority. I must move on because I want to I get to the summit of this passage. So let me read this next snippet and then we'll keep going. He says in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man whom they seek to kill? Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man does? And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? That we won't be able to find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I'm going, you cannot come. We won't stop for very long on that section of the conversation. But you can see the same theme, right? That he's God's Messiah. He says, you could come after me. And you wouldn't even be able to apprehend me. Actually, they do send people after Jesus. They say, go arrest him. And you can even see the people, they're thinking like, wait, he's standing here saying these things. Isn't this the guy that they're after? Why is, why is no one touching him? And it says they could not arrest him. And it wasn't that Jesus was just really good at evading arrest. Jesus was above arrest. Rob mentioned last week how we love our court cases. Guilty. But we also love the renegades, right, and the people that have been on the road, escaping the law, Walker, Texas Rangers tracking them down, right? We love to see someone get away. We love to see someone. How, how long did they hole out in such and such a place before the SWAT team got to them? Like, we love, we love this idea. 
um, that someone could evade the law for that long. And that's not the point here. It's not that Jesus was just really good. Like he was just so slippery that they, they came, came to get him and they just couldn't catch him. You better watch episode five to see what happens, right? Jesus was above arrest. And even John saying that. They sent all their soldiers, they sent all their guards, and they couldn't lay a hand on him. Because he was God's Messiah. And he was obedient to his father. He was above arrest. It wasn't his time. I don't know what would have happened if the men would have come, like what would have happened if they, they charged at Jesus. You know, I don't think they would have just evaporated, you know, but they wouldn't have been able to do it, right? They wouldn't have been able to lay their, lay their hands. And later they say, has anyone heard a teaching like this? Pharisees are like, why didn't you arrest him? It's like, he talks like an angel. <laughs> like he has authority. Like he knows what he's talking about, right? We can't do it. We just can't bring ourselves to arrest him because he's God's Messiah. And that's where I want to land. And I want to go ahead and before we read this last section, I want to give you um, the, the big idea for today. And that big idea is that out of a heart that believes in God's Messiah, a river of rushing water will flow forever. Can I say that again? Out of the heart that believes in God's Messiah, a river of rushing water will flow forever. And that's what Jesus says in this following section. And I want to talk a little bit more about what he means when he talks about that, that rushing river and streams of water. We're going to talk about the Spirit this morning. So let me go ahead and read verses 37 to the end of the chapter. Thanks for allowing me to read through this big chunk. I realize it's been hefty. And then I want to talk about this promise that Jesus has for us. So verse 37 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. And as only Jesus could, he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit has not been given, because Jesus had not yet, was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? You can hear John's irony. Like these people are asking, isn't the Messiah supposed to come from Bethlehem? John's like, yes, yes, he is. Verse uh, 43, so there was a division among the people over him, as there always is of Jesus. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And it's kind of amazing that we have this glimpse, right? Not just the brothers, not just the Jewish crowd deliberating about Jesus. We actually have a glimpse of the, the religious leaders and I think they must have heard this from Nicodemus, um, who had come to believe in Christ. 
um, at some point in his life and relayed this conversation. It says that the soldiers came back and the Pharisees said, what are you doing, right? You had one job, right? Go and arrest him. And, and they came back and they said, we couldn't. No one ever spoke like this man. And then the Pharisees do, like, sadly, a lot of us do in our culture, they just start to, to demonize the other position. They say, well, this, the, people are, the, the people are stupid, right? The people don't know the, they don't know the law, and they are accursed, right? We're above it. And actually, I, I can say that legitimately in, in the Greek here. It's a really strong language. The Pharisees actually say the people of the land, which is a very derogatory term. The, the Pharisees are like, the people of the land, they're cursed, right? We haven't been deceived, Right? They've been deceived. And they say, we know that this is not the Messiah. And as we know, to their ultimate detriment. Right? But let's, let's return back up and land at the summit of this passage, which I told you is verse 37 to 39. And what I want to do with the remainder of our time together, um, I want to, to share with you what I think this audience would have heard whenever they heard Jesus' words. Out of you will flow rivers of living water, right? This is not an actual verbatim quote of the Old Testament, so it, it has made it a little bit tricky. A lot often, I would say every time, but maybe this one, <laughs> when the New Testament writer or Jesus himself uses a quote, he's using an exact phrase or a paraphrase context in Old Testament. And what we're going to see in a, a few moments is whenever Jesus says, out of the one who believes will flow liver, livers, <laughs> I hope not. Right. Rivers of living water. He says, they would have known exactly what that meant. They would have known that it was the spirit promised by God the Father that the Messiah was going to pour out on the whole congregation there of all those who believed and for us who believe as well. Um, so as I do that, let me go ahead and dive in just to a couple of um, promises of the Old Testament and so what did that entail? So in a sentence, what was the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament? In a sentence, it was hearts made new, led to flourish in righteousness. That's my sentence. You could probably find a better one out there. But that's my sentence. The promise of the Holy Spirit. All these Old Testament believers looking forward to a Messiah, but they're also looking forward to the Messiah's gift, the Messiah's promise. Every time the Old Testament talks about the Spirit being poured out, in a sentence, I think it's hearts made new, led to flourish in righteousness. We're going to look at some examples of that. If you want to look at it in three words or three activities, I'm going to say cleansing, leading, and enriching. Right? What does the Spirit do? What will the Spirit's ministry look like? You could put a ton of words under there, so I'm not trying to limit to these three. But what does the Spirit do? He cleanses, the Spirit leads, and the Spirit enriches His people. Um, so the first of the examples I want to look at is from the book of Jeremiah. And the prophet is talking about this new covenant. He's talking about a new covenant that the Messiah is going to bring, that the Messiah is going to seal and bring about. And Jeremiah 31 says this about the new covenant that you and I live in. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. To highlight the Spirit's leading, it says, They shall know me as the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Right? And Rob mentioned last week that that's the covenant language, and that's something that you and I this morning are privy to. Right? He is our God, and we are his people. How do we know that? How do we experience that? Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
And then just a, a short section later in the next chapter, but the same thought line about this new covenant says, I will make them dwell in safety and I will not turn away from doing them good. Right, so what is the Spirit's activity? What, is this, the, what would this have audience heard when Jesus said, I'm going to pour out rivers of living water? They would have heard, he's, he's saying something. Right, he's announcing something big time, something that we've been waiting for, something that we would only associate with the Messiah and something we would only associate with the new covenant, something that Jeremiah spoke of, that they will be cleansed, they will actually be led to know God and to know the Lord, and they will also be made to dwell in safety, and God will never turn away from doing them good. Right, that's what these people would have heard. And one of the reasons... Church, why I'm, I'm stopping here, one of the reasons I'm even taking a, a little field trip to the Old Testament is I'm worried. I'm worried that we as a church don't quite know or experience the Holy Spirit as we should. I'm afraid that we've reacted to an emotional, charismatic view of the Holy Spirit so much that we have rationalized him, made him so logical and boring that we've actually put the Spirit of God in a box. That's my fear. And there could be nothing more detrimental, there could be nothing more dismissive and insulting, even to the character of God, than to not truly understand the Holy Spirit and his role in the life of a believer and his promise in the new covenant. Right, so we're, since we're reacting to emotionalism or we're reacting to this unpredictable Holy Spirit, but we treat him as if he's an it and not a him. Right, we treat the Holy Spirit as a doctrine that, yeah, I think this gets me through my Christian life somehow. But I don't think we fully realized and captured and, and are enjoying, experiencing, rushing river inside of us because we're not treating him as the third person of the Trinity. Right? The Spirit is God. He's not just the presence of God. It's not like I'm Jeremy and if I was to walk into the, you know, the, the lobby, if I came back in, that was my presence with you. Like, it's not like the Spirit's not just the, the communication of the Father or just another, another part of all these spiritual language. We talk about peace and joy and we even relegate him to fruit Right? Or we even relegate, we, we think of the Spirit, we think, yeah, he's just the bringer of the sign gifts. No idea what he's supposed to do after that. No idea how he is supposed to fill my life. But do you know how Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit? He said that if you believe in the Messiah, he said, you will have a river gushing out of your heart by the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit's presence. And that's what I long to see. I spent majority of my week preparing for this sermon, confessing my sin of putting God in a box. I had to say over and over again, Spirit of the living God, I don't know you. I want to, but I don't. And I'm confused about who you are. I'm confused about your role in my life. I find myself day in and day out spiritless. When the message of Scripture and the promise of the new covenant fulfilled in Jesus, secured in Jesus, is that I should have the spirit and life in abundance, that I should be filled and actually indwelt with the person of God. 
And, and Jesus says this as he gets later on into um, his ministry or later on into the book of John. He says, how are we going to make our home with you? How does God and uh, the Father and God the Son make their home in the believer? He says through the Spirit. Jesus says, it's actually advantageous. It's better for me to leave so that the Spirit will come. I don't know about you folks. That's not my current perspective and reality of God's Spirit. When I think of, of rivers of living water, right, I feel like I have desperately missed out. I feel like I have desperately missed the mark, and that is not my reality. And I want to know why. So let's keep going into Ezekiel to figure out kind of what this audience would have heard and what Jesus meant. This is another new covenant promise section of Scripture. So Ezekiel's just prophesying of this promised new covenant, and it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and I will cleanse you from all your impurities. The same chapter, a couple of verses later, he says, And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. And you might be familiar with this reference because of, it says that Israel had hearts of stone. They could not keep the law. They could not love God with all their hearts and they could not love others. It says you have hearts of stone. I'm going to take out those hearts of stone and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. And verse 27 says, And that is my spirit, says the Lord. And you'll actually want to serve me. You'll actually want to keep the law. You'll actually want to love God and love others. Right? That's the power of the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then enriching. All the other of these quotes I, I quoted verbatim. Just wanted you to know. I know this is large chunks. But that's Ezekiel 36, 25 in quotes. I'm not trying to just draw these out and use them for my purposes. The one in 47, if you see that enriching or Ezekiel 47, I couldn't put in quotes because it's the whole vision. Right? So let me tell you about it. And I think this is what probably informs the majority of this quote in, in Jesus' preaching. Ezekiel sees a vision of the temple. And out of this temple flows a river. It says that the, the temple is leaking out of the, all sides, and, and the water is going out into all the land. And it says everywhere that this river goes, it says there's life. The river goes out this way, and it says it creates trees and vegetation and green. It says it actually creates fish and, and animals. It says this river goes out into the Dead Sea, right? And, and you all would know, right? It says it actually makes the Dead Sea fresh water. So he's trying to give this imagery of, of the temple whenever the, the spirit comes will actually flow out and create life and will be like a, a rushing water. And everywhere the river goes, there's life. So you can imagine whenever Jesus says, and Jesus is the temple, right? He tabernacles among us. And then he says on the last day of this feast, he stands up there and says, hey, you know this water that you're celebrating? You know, this, you know this living water that you crave? He says, I have it. I've got it. I have the authority as God's Messiah to pour out the blessings of promise. I have the authority from God to, to pour out the blessings of a new covenant. You don't have to live in dead works anymore. You can have forgiveness. You don't have to, to, to try to figure things out on your own. You can actually be led by the very Spirit of God. And that last part, enriching, right? that's what the Spirit loves to do. In Genesis, it says that the face of the earth was without form and void. And do you know what moved over the face of those waters to create beauty out of chaos? It was the very Spirit of God. It says the Spirit of God hovered over this formless void and it says it created life created this garden this world perfect 
and green and lush. So what am I getting at? What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that that Jesus said that out of your heart can flow this same kind of living water if you truly do believe that I am the Messiah. What a promise. What a promise that we may not be walking in full experience of. I'm going to go through these last ones quick and then wrap up. Um, They're just from Isaiah to highlight more of what the Spirit does and, and works in our life. He says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The Spirit's leading. This is another beautiful text in the Old Testament where the Lord says, I will guide you always. I will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. So promise, and then Jesus says, fulfillment. You can have this through me. And then he says, I will pour out water on the thirsty land. I'll pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. So I want to ask you two questions. Is this your experience of the, the spirit of God? Is this your experience of the spirit of God? If you're anything like me, you found yourself woefully, sadly, a little bit confusedly off the mark. When I think of Jesus' promise that out of my heart will flow a river of rushing water, I feel like I'm missing out. And then let me ask you, what is preventing you and I from experiencing the Spirit in such a way? What's preventing us from experiencing the Spirit in such a way? So if the Spirit's role is to cleanse, let me challenge you that one thing that might be getting in the way is sin. Right? Sin isn't just the thing we do that we probably shouldn't. Our sin isn't just a diet plan and our calories and our workout should, should equal out so that we lose weight. Right? We're not just supposed to have enough God to counteract enough bad things in our life, and if we hit even, we're good. Right? Sin destroys. Sin ruins. Sin wrecks. Sin maligns the character of God. Sin corrupts. And you know what sin does? In your heart and my heart, sin deceives. And so we may not actually be experiencing the fullness of this spirit promise because we have sin residing in our hearts that we're holding on to. And it actually deceives us to tell us that we're okay. Sin says, it's fine. And I don't know what your struggle with sin looks like, but there are so many things, as we well know, that can get us down and that can entangle us and wrap us up. I don't know what your addiction is. I don't know if you're struggling with same-sex attraction. I don't know if you're struggling with glimpses at pornography. I don't know if you're struggling with self-image or pride. I don't know if you're struggling with just selfishness in your marriage. Like you just cannot give up what you think you rightfully deserve. You might be struggling with the, the sin of idolatry. You have idols that you don't even know about. Or you have an idol that's yourself and you're pretty happy because you get what you want when you want it. All right, but sin deceives us and even Jeremiah would say that we're, we're, we're digging out wells in the ground because we want water, right? We're thirsty. 
We want it. We just don't know how to get it. And Jeremiah even says, stop digging wells in the ground. Don't you know that you can turn to the, the fountain of living water? And I don't know what, what sin is holding you captive this morning, but I am confident. I believe that the Spirit of God is a, a rushing river and that it can flow over you and, and dissolve that and break that sin and break that hole that it has on you. Whatever addiction, whatever delight, whatever, whatever thing you're giving yourself to, I believe that the Spirit of God can break through it. And I believe that he can provide cleansing. Another thing that might keep us or prevent us from experiencing this type of spirit activity in our lives is stubbornness. Right? So if, let's say that the spirit cleanses, what gets in the way of that is sin. Right? If the spirit wants to lead us, what gets in the way of that? Just good old-fashioned stubbornness. Do you live your life 80% in your own power and 20% in God's? Have you decided that you are so culturally conditioned and southern nice and well-bred and fancy looking that you need God for 20% of your life when he wants 100% of it? Have you stopped relying on the Spirit of God to lead you day in and day out, moment by moment? And the reason I'm, I'm, I'm saying that, the reason I'm picking on our stubbornness is because that's often how I am. If I've done something before, I go into it and I'm like, I'm good. And then I get to those really, really scary parts of my life. I get to those really, really scary parts of grief or diagnoses or whatever. And then I say, okay, okay, okay. Now I need the Spirit of God. Did you know that the Spirit of God wants to lead you all week long? That the Spirit of God wants to direct every single one of your steps? That he wants to guide all of your thoughts? And that he wants to empower all of your life, all of your life, not just the, the 20%. Not just the really, really hard things. He wants to get you up out of bed in the morning. He wants to help you love your spouse. He wants to help you love your kids or your parents. He wants to walk with you to work. Right? That's the promise. Right? That's the reality. So what's preventing it? I don't know what kind of stubbornness might reside in your heart, but a lot of us think that Jesus has qualified us for the race, the marathon. We got our little number. Not a runner, so I don't even know where it goes. But we have our number, right? And now it's go time, right? Now I can just, I'm going to run. And I'm going to run for 45 years in that direction because now I'm good, right? Jesus doesn't just qualify us for the race, right? Jesus qualifies us with his righteousness. And then he says, here's my spirit, run, right? Here's the living water, run, right? He wants to lead us. You might feel like a duck in a pond, the Spirit wants to take you like a kayak down whitewater rafting. Right? That's what he wants to do. He wants to lead you. Are you being led? Are you being dominated by the Holy Spirit? Is that your experience? If not, come and drink. Right? If not, I would say Jesus' words to you. If anyone's thirsty, if you want to be led, come and drink. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. I'm going to conclude with, with this. I believe that the Spirit wants to cleanse us. I believe that the Spirit wants to lead us. I also believe that the Spirit wants to enrich our lives. And when I say enrich, I mean that river that flowed out of the temple in Ezekiel's vision. Like he wants to create life. 
Jesus is making all things new. Has anyone been holding on to that promise this past week? Whenever you see folks that you love pass away, whenever you get to that, that tough time in your life, a season of spiritual or even mental and physical depression where you have no joy and you have no optimism and you can't even formulate prayers anymore, I believe that the Spirit of God wants to enrich your life. And so one of the things that gets in the way of that is not just sin and stubbornness, but skepticism. Am I speaking to a church this morning that is just skeptical that God is good? Is that your experience right now that you're struggling? You're like, I cannot just, I can't see it. I've experienced such loss. I've experienced such hardship. Like You don't even know. I can't make it through. If another person asks me how I'm doing, I'm just going to, the river of living water will be just my tears falling down. Like that's where I'm at, Jeremy. And I just want to, I want to just want to encourage you. I want to bring you close like Jesus brings us close. And I want to say, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Jesus has rivers of living water. He wants to enrich your life. He wants to make all things new. And you might have to look at past grace, but you also might need to look to future grace. All right, ask Patch right now, does the Spirit want to make all things new? And ask someone who's, who's been in their life, has been in a tough season and come out of it, does the Spirit really want to enrich your life? Yes, he does. And I want to invite everyone in here and, and conclude with, with this big idea that hopefully you can take into your week. Out of the heart that believes in God's Messiah, a river of rushing water will flow forever. And I've been speaking the majority of this time to this church and followers of Jesus. This isn't just a once and and done. This isn't just like, oh yeah, you believe when you were five and there was like a trinkle of water. Like this is, you believe when you're five and now you're 85 and the Spirit still wants to give you living water and a rushing river. So I invite you, if you've been drinking from a old drinking fountain that should have had maintenance done years ago that you got to lean in so close because like the, the little, little stream doesn't come out that much, you know what I'm talking about? You got to like jiggle the knob a little bit to get it to come up. Then it splashes you in the face, right? If, if you've been finding something and your sin has been just bumming you out and your sin has been destroying your relationships, I'm not surprised. But don't stay there. If you've been struggling to understand that God is good and that God is for you, I understand there. I understand that. I've been there. But come. Find living water. The Spirit wants to rush over us and fill us and flow out of our hearts. And if you've been sitting there, like, on the outside of a fishbowl, and you're like, Jeremy, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is. I'm happy that I'm not going to be hanging around after the service. I'd love to chat with you. I know someone around you would love to chat with you and say, who is this Messiah and what is he talking about? Because he really does offer life. And all those who believe that he's the son, that he died for their sins and that he rose again, they too can experience living water. Let me pray.
Merciful Savior, I pray for this group and I pray for my own heart so often off the mark of our reality. We think our reality is just depression and darkness. In fact, our reality is life and joy and peace by God's Spirit. And you know my heart and prayer for this room, for each soul held captive by addiction, each soul held captive by self-image, each soul held captive by skepticism. Spirit, I'm just asking that you would rush upon us, fill us with living water, wash us free of our dead works, and bring us into everlasting life. Jesus, thank you that you are faithful and obedient and that only you can pour out this promise. We thank you for all that you